Locale. Local. Shock. Local. Cambiamento. Tahir. Gergelecta. Sakula Ijaya. Food. Change. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. My name is Valentina Gritti. I'm the podcast host and the global community and project manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. The episode of today is dedicated to indigenous communities and their resilience. The host and editor of the episode is Sara El Sayed. We have already met Sara in our podcast episode Arid Lands and Regenerative Preservation Practices. Sara is a PhD in food system sustainability, focusing on regenerative food practices in arid regions. She's also a researcher in biomimicry. She's co-founder of Nawaya, a social enterprise working as a catalyst to transition small-scale farmer communities in Egypt into more sustainable ones through education and research. She's also co-founder of Daima, a limited liability company responsible for outdoor environmental education, teaching young adults about biomimicry and local Egyptian communities. She sat on the Slow Food International Board, representing North Africa, and currently she's a board member for Slow Food Phoenix. Sara took care of the interviews, editing and production of this episode. So I'll now leave her the word. Enjoy the podcast. We invite you to travel with us through the complexity and interconnectedness of food and explore the stories and practices of traditional and small-scale producers who innovate through intergenerational knowledge. We challenge you to think about the roots of our food and make conscious decisions about what is on our plate and how it got there. Indigenous people, shine your light, we are equal. I remember the days when our prayers were illegal. I'm your host, Sara El Sayed, and to better understand these topics, I have invited several Indigenous guests to delve into issues of resilience in their communities, as well as how the global pandemic has impacted their communities and food systems. They highlight the traumatic history that has harmed their communities and challenge us to think about how these ancient, communities are able to continue to survive and find solutions despite the obstacles. They do so by weaving tradition and innovation. Dean pushes us to think about the impacts on Indigenous people. Lillian's hopeful outlook invites us to see youth offer the answers to a future of Indigenous food sovereignty. Carson encourages young Indigenous leaders to lead the path forward. And Roxanne gives us a glimpse on practical solutions within her community. Our first guest is Dean Seneca. He graduated from the University of Hawaii at Manoa, where he got his education on indigenous knowledge. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. I was born a poor Indian child in the inner urban area of South Buffalo. Uh, a native person among the Irish. I'm a graduate of the University of Buffalo, where I really studied architecture and environmental design, and that's where I got my urban and regional planning background. My first position was being a, a data collection analyst for the Seneca Nation of Indians, and that kind of started me off on this whole path of promoting uh, and advocating strongly for American Indian, Alaska Native, Native Hawaiian rights. 
I really had the privilege to work with uh, indigenous people all the way from New Zealand to Quebec, from Barrow, Alaska to Brazil. I had the opportunity and I went to CDC. Which is the American Center for Disease Control. I was the lead for American Indian Alaska Native Health right at the top levels of the agency. From there, I moved over to our sister component, ATSDR, and that's the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, where I was the director of the Office of Tribal Affairs. So I dealt with a lot of environmental health issues pertaining to American Indian Alaska Native populations. Our next guest is Lillian Hill, a mother, a farmer, a builder, and an educator. My name's Lillian, and I was born and raised on the Hopi Reservation here in northern Arizona. And I uh, am an indigenous woman, and I have lived here my whole life with my immediate and extended family and clan. And I have been raised primarily in a farming and a foraging family, so I was raised very close to the land. I'm really close to a lot of the plants that I frequently visit both plants that I've grown from seed and then also plants that I frequently collect food and medicine from. So I think my favorite plant would have to probably be the the bushmint or the poliomintha and canna plant, which is a very fragrant mint plant that in the springtime my family uh, gathers this plant as a herb or a medicinal tea that we drink throughout the year. It's a very beautiful and delicate plant. Next is Carson Kiburu. He is co-president of the Global Indigenous Youth Caucus. Hello everyone. I am a young leader involved in Indigenous Youth Global Governance. I am from the Endorois Indigenous Peoples in Kenya, East Africa. I am a member of the Slow Food Indigenous Terra Madre. I am a co-founder and executive director at a non-profit that promotes and protects the rights of Indigenous peoples. It's called Jamie Asilia Center. And so it's coordination level to design and develop programs. We make sure that we see our people growing in economic and social rights. And I also involve myself on global youth governance at the Indigenous Youth Constituency in and around the UN ecosystem. I've been inspired by the people-oriented approach to leadership and work ethic. This is because it brings out creativity and innovation, a sort of holistic approach. So it connects you with the, with the people on the ground, and that's where we, we get the power to lead. Finally, we have Roxanne Swenzel, an indigenous woman from Santa Clara, New Mexico. We have already spoken to Roxanne on our episode on arid lands and regenerative preservation practices. But today we talk to her as an indigenous woman and discuss food projects she's been involved with to improve her community's resilience. I live here on the reservation and I am working in keeping traditions alive that were maintaining us for thousands of years. I am also an artist. And I started a nonprofit in 1989 called Flowering Tree Permaculture Institute, which focuses on 
the sustainability of our tribal ways of life. What inspires me to do the permaculture stuff is the joy in watching nature and how it works and the life that is in it from the microorganisms in the soil to the plants and insects and birds and everything that creates life. Trying to understand how nature works and how I can be of service to it made me always feel closer to nature. And the closer I am to nature, the more I feel like I belong here and I'm fed and it it feeds my soul in a very deep way. Yes, you can bet that we've seen the single mama raising children on the res. We've seen domestic violence. Terror, this is obviously a very complex topic, but could you give us a general overview of some of the historical challenges that Native American indigenous communities have faced over the years? Can't take the dread anymore. Well, it's, it's really not a brief discussion. Just way too many variables. But in the social construct of things, it's just that Native people are disenfranchised. People who are minorities have known this forever, that things are not equal. In the situation with American Indians, we have gone through a lot of trauma. We've gone through reservation systems. We've gone through removal We've gone through reorganization. We've gone through termination, and now we're in self-determination. So when you take a people and you displace them, you strip them of their identity, you send them to a boarding school, teach them how to be servants. They didn't teach the Indians how to be doctors and lawyers. They taught them how to be servants. And then you throw them back into a community, and then you basically say, hey, function, because you're educated now. Those are the worst experiences ever. That set them back. They were beaten if they spoke their language. They were a lot of abuses in those boarding schools, a lot of sexual abuses in those boarding schools. All of these different events have happened throughout the real American Indian history, the stuff that you don't learn in high school. And you basically want them to compete with everybody else for economics or higher education or whatever. They're at a huge disadvantage. And that's why we have this concept called intergenerational trauma in which many of our Native populations suffer from. But also, that creates a huge sense of hopelessness. And that's what I'm, I'm talking about. I'm talking about Native people that have gone through all of that and still able to overcome and be better or as competitive as everybody else. Carson also explains how his people's way of life has been disrupted in Kenya by the infiltration of corporations and multinationals and how this has altered their traditional agro-pastoralist way of life. So I come from a people who are majorly agro-pastoralists. The life of a pastoralist is very simple by nature. For us, our lives rotate around our livestock. This is basically cattle, goats, and sheep. But majorly, it's centered around the cows. We're, we're almost moving away from transhumans to doing uh, mixed agriculture. We've never left uh, the pastoralism part, but then again, we're challenged these big corporations who look into overproduction and overconsumption, but not paying into attention the quality of 
what, what we produce in terms of subsistence and does it pay attention to our food heritage and culture? There's a lot of very complex, tragic history there. And as Dean said, it has lasting effects even now. So given that background, I asked Lillian, how do food systems come into play with this indigenous history? And how can their regenerative food systems help indigenous communities? Through time, our people have developed food systems that have not only nourished the basic health of our human bodies, but have actually helped us to develop a physiology that is resilient and that is resistant to disease and virus. I think traditional practices are so important because a lot of the food that's coming into the community, that has come into the community through food warfare throughout the ages, through colonization, much of this food has been food that has caused illness. It has done the very opposite of, of being generative to our communities. So our communities are in a position where we are impacted by food-related diseases and therefore our immune systems are compromised. We have many people who are dependent on this industrial food system that is making us sick. And so I think traditional practices, our traditional foods are so important because these foods are foods that physiologically our bodies recognize. Also, our spiritual practices, our ceremonies, our songs, and our stories are very important to continue as well because we are a collective community. So I think our our food practices and our traditional practices are definitely important and we have to find ways to continue those practices and to do it in a safe way where we're supporting each other, supporting community and supporting continuance of, of culture over the long term. Food and health issues are highly interrelated in your community, Roxanne. How do these concerns connect to your own community's quest to improve health and reconnect with food and the land? Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people, oh yeah. Oh, I was on a journey about seven years ago where my son, who is a historian and is focused on Native history. We were looking through a bunch of old photos of our people, the Pueblo people, and we're noticing as we looked further back in time, the healthier we looked in the photographs. (laughs) And the more recent we get to now, we didn't look so healthy anymore. My son at the time was uh, about 250 pounds and going on getting bigger and bigger. And he had recently gone to the doctors and they had told him that he was um, heading for a heart attack if he didn't change his his ways. We thought, wonder if we could eat the diet we were eating then in today's world. So we managed to find 14 volunteers from the Pueblo, from the tribe, that were willing to go on this pre-contact diet for three months and be tested. They ranged from six years old to 65 years old. And we had a whole range of health issues from obesity, diabetes, depression, high cholesterol, heart disease, alcoholism, all kinds of autoimmune diseases. Uh, We had it. 
we all held hands and we decided, okay, we're going to try this. Went and got our blood tests, prodded, poked, weighed, and went home depressed. And then we started to eat our original diet. Within three months, which isn't a very long time, we had changed so radically, the doctors were blown away when we went back. First, it was, what did we eat? We're just trying to figure that out. And so we did a lot of um, just basic research of the land. Basically, it was what was edible in our environment before the contact of uh, Europeans and um, find out what the species here were. And that's plants and animals and grown agricultural plants. We ate the wild game of deer, antelope, rabbits, some elk. And in the gardens, we were growing a lot of corn, beans, squash, amaranth, uh, wild greens that we're used to, and mushrooms. We had wild plum out here. We had mountain berries like wild raspberries and wild strawberries. Down in the hills, we had pinyon trees, and we'd get a pine nut from that. So that's what we ate. What I learned from this project was how when you fit things to their right place, uh, health is produced. And I think of it again as, you know, coming into a system that's out of balance. And if you start to give it what it really needs, which for us was a different diet, a different set of food, it will become healthier. We eventually adapt to a location because it's a survival technique. So, you know, people that needed more sunlight has a different pig pigment in their skin, different body types, all adapted because th those were the traits that helped us survive the best. The food that we eat is adapted to our bodies over thousands of years for us here. And in the last 50 years, it's changed greatly because we've we've um, changed into a processed food world, and our food is not fitting with our bodies. So for us, going back to our original diet made it so that we were eating what our bodies understood for more than 20 generations. It fit. The shoe fit, and our bodies immediately went into a balanced state and became healthier and happier. All of us, no matter where we are from, are indigenous to this planet somewhere. I always want to encourage people to go look. Look back at your history about where you're from and see what kind of foods fit you. All you warriors of love, all you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. I can feel it in my heart. Can you feel it in your blood? I can hear the seven fire calling us to wake up, wake up. All our speakers have showcased how despite the circumstances, just how resilient indigenous communities are. Despite systemic racism, government and corporate control, the impact of diseases, forcefully changing people's diets and food systems. 
how they are still able to adapt and survive and exist today. The Anishinaabe cultural theorist Gerald Visner calls it survivance, this active sense of presence, despite adversity, through these different struggles, but also through the stories and songs. Rise up, cause now's your time. We don't have to hide Even though indigenous communities have survived and built strong systems, as Roxanne has illustrated, the current pandemic has exacerbated the situation. Dean's experience on native health enables him to give us a big picture. We're really yet to see the full effects of this virus on native populations. We have some populations that are handling it pretty well, but most of our populations are not handling it well at all. Because of a lack of funding, we have these huge health disparities. And with these huge health disparities, we have many pre-existing conditions. We have huge diabetes rates in Indian country. Added COVID-19 makes for huge impacts. Our infection rates are extremely high. Because we have multiple generations of people living in one home, we have many communities that don't have running water. They don't have running water. How are you going to sanitize and clean anything? So when it comes to COVID-19, and because of all of these policies by the U.S. government and all of these things that have been inflicted on us and things like racism in health, this virus in my opinion, has devastating consequences for Indian country. I think we're still yet to see the full effect. In East Africa, also indigenous folks have been heavily impacted by the pandemic. Carson tells us how the youth and young mothers were specially harmed and how other youth tried to address this. I was as well uh, destabilized when the pandemic hit the world. And back at home, what I saw was very worrying because even though Corona took time to get to us, the, the socioeconomic effects were huge. And when I saw even with my parents and the entire community, it was not a good thing to see because of the hopelessness in the youth, which form a big majority even in my own community. Carson and other youth advocates started strategizing on what opportunities they can take advantage of to improve their situation. We developed some programs that were able to help our people. Uh, the schools were closed and we had the curfew. People would not move. We have expectant mothers and very distant health facilities. And so we discussed with the authorities how they can allow emergency cases of maternal services to be attended to at the hospital and for the community members who are taking these people to the hospital because we had fatalities or even serious cases. And so we were very glad that uh, back at the community level, we never had a serious case, but it was happening all over Kenya. And another way was how the schools were closed. And we thought for the young people, were getting carried away by the hopelessness. In this period, unfortunately, without schools, they saw an increase in crimes and teen pregnancies. We designed some programs that they could 
we, we revived the environmental clubs in primary schools and we also created some discussion groups of course observing the social distancing and covid related uh, guidelines from the authorities we we got to discuss and see how to change our future and other indian reservations the most vulnerable were the ones who were really impacted and many organizations had to pivot their efforts towards relief work the pandemic has definitely created a few challenges for our community prior to covid a lot of the work that we have been engaged with is really providing opportunities for our community to learn and to grow together and to really provide opportunities for training and capacity building when the pandemic hit our tribal leaders made a decision that we were in a complete stay at home shelter in place order and all of our villages are closed in order to protect our people and the most vulnerable people living in our communities and so in that way many of us have had very limited mobility and so a lot of the work that we were doing prior to covid or we had to really pivot in ways where we were being of service to the community and so what happened is that shifted towards providing emergency relief to the communities and to families directly and so we quickly worked with groups like the Navajo Hopi COVID-19 relief effort and became extremely involved in coordinating emergency food relief efforts so I became uh, one of the lead coordinators with that effort and basically recruiting tons of volunteers developing health and safety protocols and then also training crews of volunteers to be able to receive emergency food and other supplies to organize sanitize and to make them available directly to thousands of families out here in the community and so that work um was very stressful and i think for myself it also showed me that our communities are very vulnerable because many of these emergency relief uh, aid was coming from outside of the community i know that covid has particularly affected the food system can you tell us how it has impacted you and how you pivoted much of the food that was coming into the community was being sourced from the industrial food system but in an emergency situation it it's food and its supplies that have helped the community to be able to stay at home and to protect our communities and so for myself as a farmer and as a grower and as someone who is trying to rebuild our traditional food systems and uphold food sovereignty that emergency aid work was in direct contrast to building a local food system or a local food economy and so i felt a little bit conflicted at times it's ultimately not a long-term solution um and it's not building any type of resilience within our communities to whether the impact of this pandemic or future pandemics um so it really revealed the fact that we are a vulnerable community I actually had to take a step away and say okay well I need to actually continue to support the work that I was supporting before the pandemic which was building local food cooperatives building and helping farmers to develop markets and continue those markets in a way that are supporting our local food systems I think moving forward you know one of the things and strategies that I've been involved with is using covid relief funding and monies to be able to build the local food system so 
we are currently in the process of building local food cooperatives and local community-supported agriculture projects and using these dollars directly to purchase local food and to really um, have meaningful conversations with food producers and farmers and hunters to identify what their needs are so that they're in a place where they can make long-term plans to support the emergence of local food economies and food systems. Despite the impacts of the pandemic that have hit indigenous communities particularly hard, there remains a lot of hope amongst many of these communities. They truly represent what resilience looks like, be it through continuing intergenerational leadership or by strengthening their food systems or by ensuring that their tools and innovations continue to be passed on. Carson, what inspires you and what are you hopeful for? I think the most important thing is intergenerational knowledge transfer. And it begins to worry me when I don't see uh, the continuity of these great ideas. Every moment that I see an opportunity to pass down my thoughts and my leadership skills and I do that with passion and I take time to make sure that I inspire more young people to join me in making sure that our people see change in their own lives. And, and so I am intentionally beginning to look for young and energetic youth from my community and from other minority and marginalized communities around this area and to see that they tap into these networks and create change in their own communities. Dean, you mentioned that Indigenous communities are very resilient. How do you ensure your communities persist? Native people are very resilient. We're still here. (laughs) Uh, Literally extinct the population, and we have survived. So our resiliency is there. You know, we will live through it. But the repercussions and complications and life loss from it is still unknown. What's the first thing that you work on? Well, my first thing would be with students. I do a lot of talk uh, often in a a lecture format with high school students. And when you talk to native high school students, you know, traditionally we are on the lower spectrum of people who get good grades, people who graduate, you know, because of a sense of hopelessness. Many don't feel to take that extra step or to even strive to get to go to college. So there's been many cases when I would talk with native high school students and talk with them about the things that they will face in the future and to let them know that in order for you to be successful, the work that you're going to do is not that hard. You know, be a construction worker, be an iron worker. You know, it's not hard work, reading a book and interpreting it and understanding it. You know, that's a huge thing because many of our Native people also have to work and read the book. I have several examples of students that I talked with in high school that ended up going out to get their PhD. And, you know, to all their mentors, they said it was because of Dean Seneca that I've done this. I have several examples. Students that I mentored at CDC now sit on the board for the Association of American Indian Physicians. That's my big thing. 
I've had tears in my eyes hugging students and other Native people because they were able to show that that they were able to do this. Something they thought only the white people could do or only those that were privileged could do. We just have to do it a little differently. Once they have that degree in their hand, once they have climbed over that mountain, the world's open to them and they know it. And, and that's what it's all about. My job as a Native professional is to pave that way and to make it easier for the Natives behind me in order to be successful. You talk about how diseases are a sign of imbalance. Roxanne, how do you then see our way forward? How do you see us reconnecting to nature? Hmm. Well, I do think any pandemic is a sign of imbalance in our natural system. And I'm not surprised we're having one because I do think that we've been sort of unbalanced I think then it's a matter of us trying to figure out what caused the unbalance and start to um, do what it takes to restore some kind of balance. I hope we can do it in time. So just because of what I've learned doing gardens and making these ecosystems that are closer in balance, I do the same process. And I start seeing what are people needing? Why are they at odds? Why are they scratching and tearing at each other? What is it they're needing? As a human being, when I'm feeling like I'm not well and I'm, and I'm scratching and tearing at my world around me, it's usually because I'm needing something. <laughs> and I can go within myself. Maybe I need to go sleep. Maybe I need better food. Maybe I need to care for myself in ways that I haven't been getting cared for. So it's not a matter of pointing fingers and blaming everything that we like to blame so we don't have to really look at our own um, direct needs that we can fulfill for ourselves. Um, I really do think that the, the option is to start finding the things we need without blaming or destroying things around us to get it. There's a whole lot of going out there, but maybe more going in here is the route to go. Lillian, do you see innovation or technology as being part of the way forward? We are the ones grandma has been praying for. So rise up. All you warriors of love, all you answers to the prayers of our ancestors from above. I can feel it in my heart, can you feel it in your blood? I can hear the seven fire calling us to wake up, wake up. From my own understanding of my own Hopi culture, during times when we emerged from the earth, so this is in our own creation story, we were actually given the technology and the tools to thrive and to live a meaningful life on Mother Earth. And those tools were very simple tools. They were a, a greasewood planting stick, a gourd full of water, and different types of seeds that we were given when we emerged into this world from our previous world. And so within our traditional teachings, these are the tools that we would need to live and to thrive in this world. So once we forego those those tools and that technology for, for other technologies 
then we lose ourselves, we lose our identity and our connection to the land. I think that right now the world is really looking to our communities for these drought resistant seeds, for our knowledge, our technology of how to live in a regenerative way and how to promote regenerative food systems. And so I think that we can continue to be innovative by perhaps developing, you know, food economies that are that are going to allow our communities to build cooperatively, to be able to rethink capitalism as it's been imposed on us to re-indigenize. So I think that's where the innovation comes from, is within our um, our indigenous technology and our indigenous intellect. And I think within the work that I've been engaged in, I've seen you know, the development, and I've seen a lot of opportunity for new systems to be developed, not only social systems, but perhaps financial systems, as well as agricultural systems. Yeah, so sorry that I'm not answering in like a linear fashion, but I do think that that the innovation is happening, and it's going to continue to happen, as long as we have the freedom to do that. The struggle of Indigenous communities continues, but they have also proven their survivance and have shown different resilient strategies. Our speakers have shown us the different strategies they have used within their communities to fight back to protect their communities, especially amidst the current pandemic. Dean has shown us through persistent education that youth are changing their circumstances. Carson emphasized the need to continue intergenerational knowledge and to encourage youth leaders. Lillian shows us how re-indigenizing along with innovation within food systems are leading the way to a new and more resilient system. And finally, Roxanne invites us to find more balance with nature, as well as to understand where we come from and how our own native foods may have a positive impact on our life. In the end, they leave us with a few parting words to inspire us. The work that I do as well is inspired by by being a good ancestor, by working to create a, a world for my children and my grandchildren and the future generations that is going to allow them to express themselves and to be able to live in a way where they have you know the best chance to not only succeed, but to thrive and flourish. There's that ability to uplift the life of another human being. If I can remember, this ability to step up is fired up by this experience. Don't let ridicule ruin who you want to be. One of our sayings in Indian country is that in order to be a a successful tribal leader, you have to have skin seven thumbs thick. Because they know that if you're a leader, you have to have tough skin. You have to be able to overcome ridicule and criticism. A place to start if you feel like you've lost all of your connection to culture, place, identity, go within yourself. And because we're all standing on this earth, and like I said before, we're indigenous, all of us, to this planet somewhere. So go to her. Get down on your hands and knees and touch the ground. That's your mama she can help you find your place again. And whether it's you're in a city and you just have a planter box, put some dirt in it. And remember, that's your mama you're putting in that pot. And let 
yourself grow something that's part of nature. Take a moment and find your place again in the world, one step at a time. We hope you've enjoyed learning from these leaders and their wisdom that spans many generations. Indigenous communities have survived and will continue to survive, but we all must value and honor the resilience they have and what they can teach us to be better stewards for this earth. They say that history is written by the victors, but how can there be a victor when the war isn't over? The battle has only just begun, and Creator is sending his very best warriors. And this time, it isn't Indians versus cowboys. No, this time, it is all the beautiful races of humanity together on the same side, and we are fighting to replace our fear with love. And this time bullets, arrows, and cannonballs won't save us. The only weapons that are useful in this battle are the weapons of truth, faith, and compassion. <laughs>